Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, this week we're going to, as usual, take 48 minutes to examine the value of our work. You know, we know work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck. Now, we're going to have some questions today from some readers who think that it is, but we're going to debate that. If work is just an exchange of your time for a paycheck, you need to be looking for some new options or, or just your attitude or something. You know, but work really, in its best form, is our best opportunity to live out our calling to create the legacy we want to leave behind. Now, I'm going to start off with some reader input on some past listener questions. I'm always uh, thrilled when listeners send me better information than what I had on a previous question. Uh, certainly, I mean, I, I read a lot and uh, have had some experience, but certainly do not have all the answers. So feel free to add to content as it comes up here. Send it in, and I'll share that in upcoming podcasts. So we've got some reader input that I want to share with you to start out. Then i got a little piece on, does money really motivate us, or are there things that work better? Again, some information, a clip sent in. I'm going to put it up on our site so you have access to the same clip. It's Daniel Pink talking about that. And I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because it's worth sharing here. Then I've got uh, letters that say, Dan, your book doesn't work. And I've got letters that say, Dan, your book changed my life. We're going to look at, you know, how, how can the same content, same economy affect people so differently? Somebody wonders, is it too late for me? at 37 years old. Have I missed my opportunity? Is it time to just kind of coast into the grave? Well, you know what my answer is going to be to that. So those are some of the questions we've got coming up here in today's podcast. So let me just uh, jump here. So some of the things going on. Now, again, this is November when I'm talking with the early part of November. It's a great time to experience fall. Joanna and I just got back from a few days out in Colorado Springs, spending time with Kevin at a free agent academy and then just time with uh, Kevin and his family they have seven children they're all delightful every single one of them we had a blast uh, loading up in two separate vehicles to go places to go out to eat and things is a challenge but an interesting and fun one we had a blast but experienced fall there and then came back to Nashville late last night where we see that fall is continuing to occur here this weekend. We all set our clocks back. So a lot of things happen right now. But again, we're moving quickly toward November 15th. Depending on when you're listening to this, we may already be past that. But November 15th is my deadline for having goals set for the upcoming year. Now, why do I do that? I mean, I want to be able just to enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas, the holidays, not be burdened by hitting January 1st and thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do this year? No, if you do that, you're already behind. I mean, you're going to be behind. So I, I work a lot during the months of September, October to make sure that I have everything laid out for what's going to happen. And you may think, well, how can I do that? I mean, how, how can I do that? I mean, if you have a job, how can you predict what's going to happen? Aren't you just a victim of getting the paychecks and whether or not they decide to give you a bonus or a raise or whatever? What if you have your own business? I mean, aren't you just at the whims of the economy? 
I mean, if business is good, fantastic. If it's bad, you know, you're a victim of what's going on. You know, is that really true? Well, I, I happen to believe that it's not true. I mean, I think that when you decide in advance what you want to happen, there's a high likelihood that, in fact, it becomes a reality. So I'm very careful about laying out my goals. And this is not just in terms of money made or what I accomplish in terms of books written, sold, or whatever. This is other areas as well. What do I want to have happen physically, spiritually, socially, in my own marriage and relationships? I mean, what are the deposits of success that I'm going to be making in those areas in the same way that I would in my business? So it doesn't really matter if you have a job or your own business or whatever. Most of what happens in life that's important is outside of those two anyway. So what are the deposits of success you're prepared to make in those other areas of your life to make it the best year you've ever had? Now, guess what happens when you are successful in those other areas, it's a whole lot easier to be successful in your career, business, work, financially as well. I mean, these things have a magnetic power. These things spiral down together or up together. I mean, it's not uncommon to find somebody who loses a job. Boom, there's a real blow to the self-esteem, obviously. It immediately affects finances. I mean, those two together is going to affect relationships, Wow. And then with those three in the tank on Monday morning, instead of hitting the streets, finding something to replace the income, it's real tempting to just watch the news and they say, gee, unemployment is up. Nobody's hiring to just sit there and watch the news, watch CNN all day and eat a bag of Pringles while you're doing it. And you start to deteriorate physically. I mean, that's the way it works. You know, emotionally, relationships, finances. Physically, those things are pretty tied together. So if you're challenged in work, the best thing to do may be to get out and run three miles, you know, hit the gym every morning. I mean, it's not uncommon in working with somebody who's going through a real challenging time that that's exactly what I do. We don't even focus on how to replace the income immediately. Let's get you in shape. Because if you are in shape physically and in your relationships, spiritually, you're on top you can do meditation, you know, reading the scripture, contemplative prayer, whatever it is that fits you well. I mean, do those things and you'll be amazed how quickly you attract success in the area that seems to be lacking. Now, I know that this is, you know, Shakespeare has an old, old saying that says a man with a toothache cannot be in love. Meaning when you have a toothache, it's hard to think about anything else. If you don't have a job or if your business is struggling, it's hard to think about anything else. Yes, we know that's true. So those areas act as a pin in a balloon where all your energy is sucked out into those areas if you aren't careful. But that's a choice. You don't have to let that happen to you. And, and believe me, you know, in times when I've been the most challenged financially and in business, I really did up the deposits of success in those other areas and found that, in fact, these principles work just exactly as I laid out. Well, we, I'm having a lot of people ask about upcoming events already, and we do have those posted, 48days.com. You can see the events scheduled for 2011. We don't have any more scheduled for 2010. I mean, I want this time to be a time where I can kind of sit back and enjoy family and all the occasions. We're starting to get invitations for all the holiday parties, which is a blast. So we spend time doing that. And I don't book myself for heavy speaking 
writing, or anything in the months of November and December. But we do have the events coming up starting in January. In January, we've got one of the Coaching with Excellence events, one of our most popular events. If you want to coach in any area and want to turn that into significant income, I mean, don't get stuck being a coach and then make $40,000 a year like 85% of coaches do. No, if you really have a coaching area of expertise, let's figure out how to make that rock and roll. So you can make six figures doing that. And that's, again, it's not just about the money, but it shouldn't be difficult to do that if you understand the principles of leveraging your coaching expertise. Right to the bank, I had somebody ask me about that just a little bit ago. Actually, I did a radio interview and the host said that she is going to attend one of our Right to the Bank events coming up next year. We've got four of those scheduled. It's a fun event. It's one of the most favorite things that I do is teaching people how to take their writing and turn that into income. So now's the time, again, as you plan for 2011, you ought to be doing planning, you know, what kind of workshops and seminars are you going to go to? I mean, budget that in. Don't think that you can change your level of success without going to seminars and workshops and reading great books or getting coaching. I mean, budget now. What is it that you're going to do next year to dramatically change your level of success? So jump on 48days.net or .com, either one. It'll lead you right to those live events. Join us for that. Uh, If you'd be interested in having me come speak, I mean, that's something I'm going to be doing more in 2011. I have not done much of that this last year because of other projects I was working on, but I have a good fit for that in 2011. I'll just shoot a note to speak at 48days.com. I think that's the email. You can find it easily on our site. I'd be happy to talk about coming to your church or community or business to just uh, talk about the exciting things that are happening in the workplace. No, it's not all gloom and doom. This is a great time to be planning to move forward with confidence. And you can send your questions. You can um, send those questions to askdan at 48days.com if you just have a question for the podcast. Or go to the podcast link on 48days.com and just fill out the little form there as well. Now, a couple things from readers. Adam Bertram commented that I am not a fan of people selling books online where you're selling one book at a time. Meaning if you go to garage sales or estate sales or even, you know, bookstores and you find rare books or unusual books or whatever and you buy them one at a time. I'm not a fan of that because it takes a lot of work to position one book. So you position one book for sale, you sell it and you have to pull that down and then put another one up. And I've commented that I only do books when I know that we're going to be able to sell, you know, 200 of a particular copy. So I put it up one time and then we do a promotion. We sell through, you know, a couple hundred at least. Adam does this differently. Now his site, I want to give you his site because he's done a really good job of how he is doing it. And he shares his information freely about how he has been quite successful selling books pretty much one at a time. The thing that I have said, I'm not a fan of. Now that site is sell your books online. I'll put that up as a resource on the podcast link. But again, the site is sellyourbooksonline.com. And Adam has done a great job. I subscribe to his uh, blog that he does to get his updates because I think he's doing a good job. And again, I, I mean, there are a whole lot of things that people do well that don't appeal to me at all. So uh, I hope that I never give the impression that it's only the things that appeal to me that... <laughs> 
are those things that I recommend. I had a great learning experience years and years ago. I was a young buck, just had my graduate degree, but then I started selling used cars in Anaheim, California. Loved the process, had a great partner in the business. Had an old guy who worked for us who wiped the cars down every morning. So he had a long history in cars, but he wasn't interested in really hustling and sales anymore. But he knew a lot about the car business, and he passed a lot of that knowledge on to me, thank goodness. But I had a tendency, when I was early in the car business, to be partial to particular kind of cars. You know, I'm geez, I love Corvettes and Mercedes and Jags and Volvos. But, you know, a Chevy or Ford didn't excite me at all. And that was back in the days when we had Chevy Vegas. Now, if you remember that, it was, geez, like the Yugo. I mean, they weren't worth much when they were brand new, let alone used. But Chevy Vegas. But my biases about them not being a great car, you know, would really come through. And old Cecil Barrel had a saying that has just stuck with me. And it's, it's a little graphic, but I think you'll get the point. He says, Dan, there's an ass for every seat. And it really made an impact on me because I realized that my biases would prevent me from selling a car that somebody else may want that may be perfect for their situation. So if you've got a business idea that doesn't appeal to me, but you're successful in it, I mean, fantastic. I'm your biggest fan. I'm approached with business ideas every week. I mean, I I love uh, having new ideas cross my desk, uh, you know, contacts. But a lot of people would want me to be involved in their businesses. But again, knowing that I plan now what I'm going to be doing next year. So that means something pops up in February. There's not a real high chance that I'm going to divert what I'm doing, you know, to do that. Now, certainly there are going to be exceptions uh, to that. I mean, last year, Nightingale Conant contacted me about a special project they were doing, wanted me to be involved. I rearranged my schedule because I wanted to do that with them. And it was a delightful project to do. And I'm glad I did it. But for the most part, you know, when somebody comes with a new business idea where they want me to be involved, I look at it. And if I think it's a good idea, I say, you know what? That's fantastic. I hope you make a million dollars. I won't be involved with you, but I hope you do really, really well. You know, how can I help you be successful in doing that? I'm real clear about not getting diverted by that. Well, let me go on. Wendy sent in a note. Uh, Somebody asked about speed reading recently and ask how I learned to speed read. And I really don't. I, I'm really, I don't have any technique for reading fast. I don't just scan through hundreds of pages. I mean, I read about a page a minute. So you can do the math on that. It means a 240-page book is going to take me four hours to read, roughly. Um, so I, I read quickly, but I'm not a speed reader. Wendy said that back in college, she was required to read How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren, how to read a book. Now, she says it was very helpful for her to learn how to read quickly and how to read differently depending on the content she was reading. So if it's a business book, it's going to be different than a novel and so on and so forth. But anyway, so now I'm not familiar with the book. I'm passing on the information. Thanks, Wendy, for sharing that with us. Again, the title is How to Read a Book. When I came home from uh, Colorado Springs last night, I had mountains of mail, and I had five books in there that people had sent me. That's pretty common. Uh, People send me books. One of them was The War of Art. Now, if that rings a bell, it may be because you've heard of Sun Tzu's book, 
The Art of War. Now, that's been a popular book. It's been around for years and years, The Art of War. It's been updated. But this is a play on that title, obviously. This has been around for a while. I think it was written back in 2002 or 2003. I had not read it. It's The War of Art. Now, we got home at about 7 o'clock last night, and I just flipped through some of the mail that was there and opened a couple packages. And one was uh, this book sent to me by uh, 48days.net member James Woosley. And it's The War of Art. I read the preface by Robert McKee, who's a very creative movie producer. I read that, and I just kept reading. I sat down at the kitchen table. I grabbed a highlighter and my post-it notes, which is the way I go through books, and I didn't stand up again until I finished the book. Uh, Joanne wandered through a couple times, says, geez, do you want something to eat? Do you want to play a game? And I says, no, no, I'm into a good book. I'll just do this. So I just read the book from front to back. Um, highlighted a lot of things. I then shared some things with Joanne that I thought were pretty profound in that. A couple of things I want to add in, even in in uh, questions that we've got coming up here in a little bit. So I do read a lot, enjoy the process of reading. I would much rather read a book than watch a movie. Uh, just a personal preference. Again, there are people, my son, Jared, loves movies. He knows movies, and he knows who the producer is. He knows who the actors are. I mean, all of that. He can remember a movie 10 years later. To me, by the time, you know, we hit the door at the end of the movie, I can't tell you what it was about. They just don't engage me. Again, I know that's a personal thing. I'm not saying anything about negative about movies. I'm just saying that doesn't engage me. Books do. And because of that, I've, I've learned to read quickly and uh, gather a lot of information in that way. Now, this comes from Rick Mueller, who says, Dan, I'm a huge fan, weekly consumer of your podcast. Good stuff. I ran across this video and thought of you since you've mentioned the work of Daniel Pink on your show before. Now, Daniel Pink wrote books like Free Agent Nation and, um, God, what is his most recent book? I can't bring it to mind. I should have a tip of my tongue. Daniel did an endorsement that I have on the front of No More dreaded Mondays. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, Daniel writes about the changes in the workplace. And so there is this video, and it is an amazing video. It's 10 minutes long, and it talks about the changes in the workplace. And there's some pretty important lessons here in what in what research is showing. Daniel Pink does a lot of research as it relates to the workplace, and I appreciate his work in sharing that. He did a book... A couple years ago, I was kidding him about it. I talked to him uh, six months ago, perhaps. He was in Nashville, and uh, I was kidding him about it. It was written in Japanese manga, that kind of art form, where it really is cartoons, but it still tells a story. Now, I would be a poor candidate to try to write a book in manga, but he, he did it, and the book did very well for him. Now, here's the principles in this little clip talking about the changes in work. The concept of paying people enough and it'll motivate them, you know, more. You just, any anytime you want to motivate somebody, you just pay them more. Well, he is saying this really doesn't work with the kind of work that we have today. If we have work that is physical and mechanical, then a bonus you know, monetary bonus will act as a motivator. But if people are doing conceptual and informational or knowledge work, a money bonus doesn't seem to work. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, this is profound for somebody who is hiring people. 
because there's still kind of the thinking that, well, if I can just pay this person another 10 grand a year, you know, then they're going to turn out really good work. And it turns out that in study after study, and this isn't even a cultural thing. This is not just an American thing. This is cross-cultural. They did this in India and some other places where they found that the big bonuses promised to the top performers was a disincentive. They did horribly on the work. But here's what does motivate people. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Now this is, you know, I love this and the way this is laid out. And again, I'll put this link up on the podcast link by the time you're hearing this. Hopefully we'll have that up there because I think it's worth going there and watching it. Now it's done. Uh, you don't see Daniel Pink. You just hear him talking, but it's done with one of these animators where they write it on a whiteboard and it's just absolutely phenomenal what they're doing with that anyway. But autonomy, you know, having somebody feel like they are the master of their own destiny. You know, somebody who's in the driver's seat, where they are involved in discussions, where they have input into the decisions that are being made. I mean, that's really important. Now, this comes with an interesting kind of caveat, though. I did a radio interview earlier today, a one-hour radio interview. Well, it was on Moody Radio out of Chicago. Been a guest, I'm a guest on there at least once a month, I guess. And uh, a caller said, I had mentioned, I had mentioned something about a work, a results only work environment, R-O-W-E, results only work environment. And how many companies are moving to that where it really doesn't matter if you come to the office or not, as long as you produce the work, that's all that matters. Had a caller call in and he said that he works for a company where that is their philosophy. It is a row environment. And he said it has worked against him because he's found that he's less productive in that environment. And I said this, and this has to do with autonomy. I said, you've got two choices. Either you can learn to discipline yourself, to create your own structure and show that it can increase your performance, or you need to look for a more structured environment where they tell you what to do and control what it is you do do. Now, to me, the better choice is obvious. Now, again, it may be a personal choice, but to me, having autonomy and then learning how to deal with it is better than knowing that you're under the thumb of somebody else. Now, this is, you know, in, in the war of art that I just mentioned that I read last night on page 37, it has a little piece that relates to this. The paradox seems to be, as Socrates demonstrated long ago, that the truly free individual is free only to the extent of his own self-mastery, while those who will not govern themselves are condemned to find masters to govern over them. Now, there's a whole lot of takeoffs on that. I mean, Brian Tracy talks about, you know, if you don't set goals for yourself, somebody else will set them for you. I mean, but if, I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that with liberty, yeah, it's more challenging. That's why legalism is so attractive. You know, that's why we have denominations where they tell you what to do. They tell you everything you can't do and can do. And people are attracted to that because it's a whole lot easier than having freedom and liberty. Now, in a workplace, we're finding, though, that autonomy increases performance. If you have people who are just do, doing what they're told to do, then they'll do exactly that. They'll do just what is required, just what you've asked them to do, and no more. 
But if you give them autonomy, it's amazing what they'll come up with. Now, in this little clip of Daniel Pink, it shows that if that, that there is a, a better incentive to increase productivity if somebody is just simply given a day, like once a quarter. He talks about a company that gives their people a day once a quarter to just do whatever they want to. Just think, just create, just come up with solutions, anything you want to. You're not being paid for it. It's not going to get you a bonus. Just think. And people come up with the most amazing solutions that they're willing to give away, that they may come up with something for a nonprofit or humanitarian cause that'll dramatically transform that organization. And they're thrilled at having come up with it and being able to give it away. That that is more of an incentive than saying, you know, come up with a better technology for inventory system, we'll give you a $500 bonus. That doesn't work. But giving them the opportunity for autonomy to just create and make the world a better place, they do it freely. Well, the second thing in this is mastery, you know, challenge, making a contribution. I mean, mastery, you look at that, somebody who wants to play golf or tennis or the piano or guitar. I mean, there's a thrill. There's a satisfaction in mastering that sport or that instrument, doing it really well. So if you give a person an opportunity to do that in their work, they're going to rise to the challenge. And then purpose, you know, having a clear purpose. Purpose. When profit is unconnected to purpose, bad things happen. If your employees are working just for the money, you better watch out. They've got to be connected to purpose. You know, we all want to be connected with something that's larger than ourselves. Again, if you're just working for a paycheck, that's why we've seen the destruction of the assembly line work because people became disconnected with real purpose. I mean, somebody putting a windshield wiper, you know, on a Chevy van they don't know the family that's going to own that, the kids that are going to ride in that. There's no connection with the ultimate purpose of that. They're just doing a job so they get a paycheck. Well, we see the quality of work that's produced under those kind of situations. And we've seen that that work model itself is just being destroyed because it doesn't work. Well, let me move on. I want to read you two letters that I got today. Okay, same day. Now, I would not share the name, but it just is more than coincidental. The name of both senders is Sarah. Now, the most common spelling of Sarah is S-A-R-A-H. In both of these, the spelling is S-A-R-A. So it's just seemed ironic, coincidental, call it what you may. I want to read both of these letters, and then I want to comment a little bit. Sarah, number one, says, my husband and I purchased and read 48 days almost a year ago, but I have to say that nothing in the job search has changed since using Mr. Miller's suggestions. 90% of the time, employers shut you out of the hiring process by not allowing phone calls or email correspondence. Even if you try to get in touch with them, they do not respond. After a while, it feels more like stalking than a job search. For example, my husband recently applied to a job for which he was extremely qualified. He submitted his resume and cover letter early in the process, followed up with phone calls and emails only to be told and only because he asked that his credentials did not fit their needs via an impersonal email response. The fact that they won't even talk to him is frustrating and disheartening. This is par for the course in job searching this year. It doesn't matter if I get a response to this email, but I want to be clear that the techniques in 48 days to the work you love do not speak to the current hiring process. Here's Sarah number two. I got this about five minutes later. This was actually a copy of a letter that was sent to Dave Ramsey. 
So I got a copy of a letter sent to Dave Ramsey, but she specifically sent it to me. Dear Dave, thank you so much for recommending the book 48 Days to the Work You Love. I started working for a new company eight months ago and was thrilled to be making my highest salary ever, $96,500. The problem was that I hated going into work every day. I knew that I needed to find different work, but feared that it would be incredibly difficult. The job market in Chicago is still pretty soft, and I wondered whether my chances of finding new employment would be further jeopardized because I hadn't even worked for my current employer for a full year. I read 48 Days to the Work You Love and really put its principles into practice. On day 48, I had a phone interview for a position that I thought I'd love. Exactly one month later, they made me an offer. I started working there on Monday. By the way, I'll be earning $123,000 with four weeks paid vacation instead of two weeks at my old job, and my commute will be reduced by 50%. Best of all, I'm looking forward to the day-to-day work. I just loaned a copy of this book to my sister, and I'm talking it up to anyone who will listen. Please keep recommending fabulous books like this one. Sincerely, Sarah. Now, there you have it. I mean, I don't have easy explanations for this. I mean, it breaks my heart to have somebody uh, feel like nobody's hiring and everything they've done following principles that have been laid out in 48 days don't work. But this is not uncommon at all. And now we hear from a lot of people, and obviously there are a lot of people who have exposure to my materials that I'm sure I don't hear from. But we have hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of unsolicited testimonials about how it opened people's eyes to better options. Now, now I mean, we'll respond to, to, to both of these. We'll respond to both of these. I mean, they both deserve a response. Certainly, we're thrilled to get a thank you testimonial. But, you know, it concerns me. Why hasn't this worked for somebody else? Same book, same principle, same economy, same political process in power in Washington, whatever. Everything's identical. Why hasn't it worked? Um, I think there are ways to figure that out, incidentally. You know, if if the steps that I lay out in getting a job are, are pretty simple. I mean, you create a clear focus by the 85% process of introspection. Looking at yourself from that, you get a clear focus, and then you create a resume that acts as a sales brochure for where you want to go. Then you create your target list of 30 to 40 companies and send out a letter of introduction. Then you follow that up with a cover letter and resume. Then you follow that up with a phone call. I mean, that's a process that works day in and day out. So we can pretty much identify where is the obstacle in this? What isn't working? So if you're sending out your letter of introduction, your cover letter and resume, and you're getting no response when you follow up with a phone call, then we need to look at, you know, does your resume really present well? Would it make you excited to receive it? Would you want this person on their team? If it doesn't, go back to that. I mean, we can go a step further. If, in fact, you have gotten interviews but have not gotten a job offer, then we need to look at what are you doing in the interview that's not working to your advantage? I had a lady approach me after a, a workshop 
one time, and she said, Dan, can you look at my resume? Now, you know, I can't look at a resume and say if it's good or bad. It, I, I can't tell if it's accomplishing what you want it to accomplish. But I said, well, it looks fine to me. Have you had any interviews? She said, yeah. I said, how many? She said, 53. I said, oh, my gosh, your resume is doing exactly what we want it to do. That is not your challenge. The challenge, 53 interviews and no job offers? My gosh, you know, did you take a shower that morning? I mean, there's something blatant in your personal presentation that's working against you. So work on that. Now, I mean, you can, and you can do that. You can change whatever it is that is causing the roadblock there. So just go directly to that. So look at where is the process breaking down? What is it that you need to work on? And each of those steps, you can learn how to do it better, more effectively, And certainly the economy is not a reason for not getting a job. The number one challenge for employers right now is finding and keeping great talent. I mean, any of the surveys show that Uh, business owners that I talk to are desperate to find people who really know what it is they contribute. Well, I I could go on on that, but I want to hit some other questions here. So we'll just move on. Tom says, I want to start another restaurant business. I tried back in 2008 while working a regular full-time job. It failed. I'm currently laid off. Don't have any finances to start up. Any suggestions in finding money or ideas that I could use to find funding? Any help would be appreciated. Tom, you are in a not in a good place. Let me just rephrase it. You're not in a good place to start a business. You know, you started a restaurant business and failed. Now you want to start another one. You want other people to put money in. Uh, That is not an attractive proposition. I mean, the best thing you can do right now is go get a job working in a restaurant, the kind of place you'd like to own ultimately. Learn what it is they're doing well. Learn on their nickel. Spend two years there. That's going to be my recommendation. Get a job in a restaurant. Work two years there. Formulate your plan during that time. Squirrel away some cash from the money that you make so you have a little nest egg then come back and say look these this is the business plan i have for a new restaurant here's my own fifty thousand dollars that i'm willing to put in you know will you help me find another hundred thousand so i can open a restaurant i mean approach it in that way don't go into it with nothing in your advantage i mean you're it's just going to be hard to make a case for anybody investing money in where you are at this particular time. Well, this comes from John. John says, I'm deep in debt and looking for a career change. I'm passionate about much, but can't find direction. I like writing, research, teaching, preaching, evangelism, computers, traveling, etc. On my site, what skills stand out? How can I market myself and to whom? Thanks, John. Uh, John, I, I looked at your site. When you, now, now for one thing, your site is very cerebral and what i mean by that it has raw information but there's very little to really engage people emotionally now obviously you have a heart for spiritual matters and i commend you on that Uh, but even with that i mean you could have a picture of a mountain range in the background or a flowing stream or something to that gives it a warmer feeling than just facts and figures as you have now when you're writing uh, and speaking on theological doctrine, when you go right to some things that are very controversial, I mean, you have to recognize you're going to have a very tiny audience. 
when, when we talk about, you know, the Christian audience for printed material is very small to start with. When you segment that even further by being very opinionated on doctrinal issues, you're going to have a minuscule audience out there. And I think it's going to be hard to turn that into a revenue stream. Now, you can do that, and I'll certainly commend you on doing it. You can do that all day long. But you're saying that you want to use that as a revenue stream. And I think you're making it very, very difficult for yourself. I mean, when we look at people like Max Licato and Robert Schuller, Charles Swindle, Joel Osteen, I mean, T.D. Jakes, I mean, these guys are talking about things that are going to appeal to pretty much anybody who calls himself a Christian. Now, you may think that's watered down and uh, there's too much grace and not enough truth or however you want to frame that. And you may be right on that, but I'm just uh, being realistic about your desire to use your information as a revenue stream. I mean, you have to have a whole lot of things in motion. I mean, I, I write for a whole lot of different Christian magazines. I mean, Christian Deacon, Christian Single, um, Life Answers. It's a Southern Baptist Sunday School curriculum. New Man Magazine. I don't know. It goes on and on. I've got lots of some of my magazines I'm not familiar with, but I write for lots and lots of them to just create, you know, traffic back to eventually those few people out of those big audiences who are going to purchase products. But you're going to need to do seminars and workshops, have ebooks for sale, create blogs and podcasts, be available for interviews, I mean, anything you can do to connect with your audience. I mentioned that today I was on Moody Radio. Well, Moody Radio has Midday Connection, hosted by Melinda Schmidt and Ani Illustria. They have a massive, massive audience that goes around the world. It's syndicated on hundreds and hundreds of stations. I mean, that's the kind of thing you want to get on, but uh, frankly, you, you aren't going to be invited on there as a guest if you have a real narrow uh, theological opinion. Um, it's going to have to be things that relate to a broad audience. Um, you, you, you've got a tough, a tough thing that you're doing there. Now, this may be need to be framed as something that you do, but not as a income source. This is something you do because you're passionate about it, you care about it. Nothing wrong with that at all. You may just need to figure out something else you can do, whether it's uh, having a landscaping business or washing windows or driving a truck. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that when you're doing something that you use as a vehicle for meeting your financial needs while you can still do something that you're passionate about. This comes... Lady says, I've spent most of my life allowing other people to make my decisions. I believe this is because as a child, I made a decision that led to my being molested. And I didn't trust myself anymore. I'm ready now, but worried that because I'm 37, some options may be closed like the arts. Any advice? Wow. Boy, this is, I mean, what a terrible thing to have been through as a child. And I'm not sure what you could have done as a child that led to your being molested. Obviously, there was an adult around who took advantage of you and made some very, very poor choices of their own. Uh, be careful about framing this in a way that, uh, that forces you to carry unrealistic guilt about what happened. I mean, I don't have all the facts there. Certainly, you've had a lot of time to deal with this, but I hope that you find a way to put that behind you and move forward in a positive way. But there are no options that are closed to you at 37. 
I mean, the arts may be a perfect fit. I mean, art itself may allow unique expression for your past in a way that really connects with others. I mean, most artists have a lot of personal issues that they are portraying in their art. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a great way of personal expression of catharsis and cleansing and healing. I mean, on my first uh, work out of uh, Ohio State University as an adjunctive therapist in a psychiatric hospital, I was working with people where we used art and pottery and gardening and playing volleyball and building nature trails as ways to engage people in work and projects and activities that would allow them to you know, to vent, to cleanse, to heal from the emotional wounds that they were dealing with. And really, you know, at 37, I mean, approaching it as you seem to be having some life experience may have just helped you get clear on what you want to do. And it may be that now is a great time to go back and get a degree. I mean, you're not too late for that. My goodness, 37, if you want to go back and get a degree in something that positions you by the time you're 45, I mean, really, most people don't start doing their real significant life work before they're 45. Anyway, Carl Jung, who was a German psychoanalyst, I mean, talked about that very clearly. He said, even if you want to be a therapist, don't think that you can come out of school and having just read a textbook and done a little practicum and be an effective therapist. What you really ought to do is have a variety of life experiences. I mean, you can work at Walmart and drive a truck and play the piano and, uh, you know, go to work at Microsoft. You know, those are valuable life experiences that then may help you become an effective therapist when you hit 45 years old or so. Now, that's pretty much the pattern that I followed, and uh, that was done intentionally. I wasn't just floundering around. I just had a lot of fun doing a variety of things. And then when I was about 45, focused that into being a life coach. And my experiences, good and bad and ugly in the business world, have helped me dramatically in coaching people through those own, their own inevitable transitions. This one comes from Tracy, who says, thanks for your encouragement. This weekend, I'm attending my second convention and will be taking orders for a simple spiral bound list type journal. It was your story of the 48 days three ring binder that gave me the courage to put this together. It won't be perfect, but it is out there. So happy to finally be doing what I dreamed. Well, <laughs> I, I love it when... You know, there have been hundreds and hundreds of people who have put their initial information together in a three-ring binder, just like I did with 48 Days, because I talk about that so openly. I mean, it sure was not polished, perfected in any way. Even the audio that I did was really rough cut, no editing, no polish, no music intros or anything like that. I just got it out there. But people liked the information, kept buying it, and that then evolved into more professionally done products along the way. But I congratulate you on doing that. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it out there. You know, I had another note here. I came back, one of the books that I was sent, and the book title, it's got a real attractive title. I assume this is the author in the front. I'm not sure, but it's uh, Samantha Merchek, and the title is Genormous, Outrageous, Audacious Living. What's your goal? And she says, Dan, you've been an inspiration to me beyond the expression of words. This is a letter in her in the book that she sent me. I lost my job in March of 2010, felt a little lost for a few weeks during that period of transition. 
I picked up two of your books, 48 Days to the Work You Love and No More Mondays. After reading your books, I felt incredibly inspired to write a book to teach others about living life to the fullest through my experiences. Because of your books, I knew it with every fiber of my being that this was God pushing me out of my comfort zone and into a world of possibilities. I knew from that point on he had more in store for me. It is because of you and your books that allowed my mind to dream again. You are a huge part in my growth, and I felt it essential that I mention you and your wise words in the book. I sincerely thank you for your words, wisdom, and a servant heart. Your name is a household name in our home. We've given countless number of your books to our family and friends who are in similar situations or in jobs they strongly disliked. I'm forever grateful to you and hope that this book will show my appreciation for all that you do for so many. My prayer is that my book can offer hope and encouragement to others just as yours did for me. Samantha, thank you, Samantha. You know, what a delightful letter, and I am thrilled. Now, she sent a really nicely done book. It's perfect bound. It's got a very attractive cover the ISBN on the back and everything laid out very professionally. I have not had a chance to read this yet, but I certainly will. And I, apparently she quotes me in there. And again, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But the big thing is just to start is just do something. It's not as complicated as you might think. And that's why I share so readily about the beginnings of my writing. It was not complicated or sophisticated in any means. It was just getting something together, getting it out there so other people could take advantage of that. Let me grab a couple more here. This comes from Rick. Thanks for all you do. You mentioned, okay, you mentioned in the past podcast about being part of a project where you and other motivational professionals produced a product that would be given to others in need of encouragement. Any new updates or how can we get a copy? I didn't remember that I had talked about that. Now, there have been some people who have been at a couple live events where we gave them a copy of this. What Rick is talking about is an audio CD, and it comes from Nightingale Conant. Now, Nightingale Conant was the producers of The Strangest Secret. That was their original product, the one that impacted me so dramatically at 13 years old as a farm kid in Ohio that helped me believe I could have a better life beyond what I was seeing there, The Strangest Secret. But 50 years of changing lives, they approached me last year and said they were putting this product together and they contacted, I think it was 25 of their best-selling authors and said, would you just share four or five minutes of wisdom, something that impacted you profoundly? And I talked about the impact of that little recording, The Strangest Secret, by their founder, Earl Nightingale. Well, I'm I don't know of anything I've ever done that I've been proud of being part of than that little project because it starts off with, you know, Brian Tracy, Tony Alessandra. Um, it's got Bob Proctor on there, Tony Robbins. I mean, it's got a whole lot of people whose work has certainly been very, very popular. And Dan Miller right there on the list. I'm fourth in the list as you listen to it. It's these little clips on an audio CD. I don't know. I haven't really decided what we're going to do with that yet. I mean, I need to do that. Again, we've been giving them out liberally when people come to our live events here. I love to be able to do that, but we don't have it available for sale. It's not available for sale through Nightingale Conant. You know what, Rick? I'm, I'm going to shoot you an individual email and just uh, give me your address. I'll send you one of those. No, I'm not going to do that for everybody. Don't just hammer me with those. I'll figure out a way, though. Ashley and I will come up with a way to have a contest where you can win a copy 
of that. 50 Years of Changing Lives, the audio CD program from Nightingale Conant. Uh, we aren't going to sell it. We're going to continue to give it away. But um, we'll, we'll figure out some way to make that available to those of you that want it. I personally really do enjoy it. I keep it in my car myself, and I've listened to it probably half a dozen times. Well, we're, we're going to be, let me just kind of wrap up again here. Um, I find a lot of people is thinking still that work is just a curse from God, that it's something that is not going to be enjoyable. You know, I just, it breaks my heart to think that there, that people still think that, that think that God actually cursed us with work. I mean, Adam had work assignments in the garden before there was any fall. And however you understand those early stories, I mean, work was the perfection, the completion of what God created man to do. Put him in the garden to tend and care for the garden. I mean, that was the original assignment. I mean, how could you imagine living out your calling apart from work? I mean, I, I don't know any other way. I mean, calling is not something we fulfill by sitting on a rock, you know, with our hands folded. The only way we can live out our calling is to have work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Well, I, I, mean, I don't want to end this on a heavy heart, but I mean, that just, it breaks my heart when I hear that people still have that belief. And if there's anything that I have as a goal, as a mission in my life, it's to help people see that that is not an accurate theology, that work is something to be enjoyed. Well, I know you're on this path to figure this out as I am. Enjoy the process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.